today we're going to dive into the Trinity. Something very simple, not complex at all, not confusing. Okay, that, that was a joke. The Trinity can sometimes be a little bit confusing, just a little bit. Uh, but we're excited about diving into that. And uh, honestly, I, what I want to do is I want to maintain the deep theology of the Trinity, but I also would like to make um, it digestible for all of us, because um, I know sometimes it can get really confusing. So I want to keep the deep theology, but I also want to make it um, as simple as possible for us all to go through today so we don't feel like we're in a seminary class, but you know, I'll try my best with that. Uh, so to help with that, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Um, I'm going to show you my outline for the sermon so you already know where we're going. Um, and so, first of all, in the introduction, I'm going to tell you why it's important that God is a trinity, why it is important that you know that, and how is it to be defined. And then we're going to talk about the oneness of the trinity, that is, our God is one God. That the persons of the trinity are one God is three persons. And the unity of the trinity, the three persons of the trinity, are one God. God. And in conclusion, we'll kind of review what we uh, have learned throughout Scripture uh, and excited to share this with you guys. So if you'd like, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. The verses will be up on the screen in just a moment. I love uh, this passage of Scripture, um, uh, Jesus' baptism. Um, I've heard some talk about uh, this moment as Jesus' inauguration, if you will. Um, and so it's this very awesome, unique moment. Um, but there's something very, very specific about it. Um, in regards to the Trinity that I think is very important. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness." Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Such a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. And something that I love about it, especially in regards to talking about God being triune, is that we see God the Father speaking from heaven. We have God the Son standing in the water, and we have God the Holy Spirit descending upon the Son. You have all three distinct persons of the Trinity all revealed together at this momentous occasion. Now, I hope that everyone in here believes, at the very least, in the deity of Christ, which is to say that Jesus was God in the flesh, the God-man. Because if he is not, we are still dead in our sins. But if he is God, we have new life in him. This essential truth, as I hope to share with you guys this morning, that Jesus is God, stems from the fundamental doctrine that God is triune. That is to say, he is one God, yet three persons. Without the reality of the Trinity, there is no deity of Christ. This is how essential this doctrine is 
to Christianity. Secondarily, if you, if you don't believe in the Trinity, to be quite honest, you'll have a very difficult time making cohesive sense of the narrative of Scripture. You really are left with only two choices. Either God is triune, or the Bible doesn't make any sense. Once again, this is why this is an essential doctrine to the Christian faith. Now, I'll be honest, and I've been there too with multiple things, and I still am there with multiple things in scriptures. Like, this sounds really deep for me. One God, three persons. I, or I just believe you. It's fine. I believe that. That's fine. No problem. I'll believe that. Well, no, I don't want to dive into that. That's complicated. And I can totally relate to that and understand. There's some stuff that I have put off to study in scripture just because it's been complicated. And now I'm like, oh, I guess I better study that now um, and come back to those things. Um, but here's why it's important for us to understand that God is triune and to try to understand it more. Because um, if we truly love God, and I'm saying this very graciously because I'm talking to myself this morning as well. If we truly love God, we should desire to understand and know him more even if it's complicated. Think of it this way. Um, to any of you guys who um, are married, you can say, I love my wife. But if you remain willingly ignorant of her personality, do you really love her? Or are you just living together? Now, see, if you truly love your spouse, you will pursue to know them better. And if we truly love God, we should pursue to know him better throughout our Christian life. I don't know if you saw this. I said it, it, it's complicated to understand the church. Sometimes it's complicated to know our wife. <laughs> yeah. Didn't think of that when I wrote that, but you know. Love you, honey. Uh, Pastor and apologist James White wrote, True worship must worship God as he exists, not as we wish him to be. That seems like an echo of John 4.24 that says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, there are other opinions and beliefs that attempt to explain God that try to explain the difference between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how it all works. And I'm going to briefly share some of those different positions. But as we continue, you'll see how none of these positions are biblical, and that they fall short of defining and explaining the glory and power of God. Here's one, one called modalism. Modalism. This is the belief that one God, there's going to be a test on this later, by the way, I'm just kidding this is the belief that one God appears or reveals himself in different forms or modes. It's like, okay, right now he's the Father. Okay, now he's the Son. And now he's the Spirit over here. He just keeps changing his forms that he is in. Um, as we saw in the opening passage, this can't be the case because all three persons appeared at the same time in the same place with distinct roles. And also, when, when Jesus prays, he doesn't pray to himself. He prays to the Father. Um, Arianism. Arianism. This is the belief that God created Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Let me be frank. This is heresy. 
to say that Jesus came into being or that the Holy Spirit came into being, that they're not eternally God. That is heresy. You cannot be a Christian truly and hold that position. Partialism. This is a belief that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each a third of God. And thus, only partially God unless they're all put together, kind of like a puzzle. Um, this is also heresy. We know biblically that Jesus is completely a man while simultaneously being fully and completely God. He wasn't just a little bit of God. He wasn't just one-third of God. He was fully God. So now that I've given some other viewpoints or trying that try to explain the, the, some of the confusion throughout Scripture of the, the plurality of the Godhead, now we're going to try to attempt to define uh, the Trinity. And, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm, I'm finite. My words are limited. I mean, not only are they limited because I'm a human being, they're limited because I'm me. <laughs> but I'm going to try to, as much as is possible for me, um, attempt to describe and define the infinite and mysterious truth of the Trinity. Uh, you know, the fact that God, Yahweh, is one God and yet three persons, it can be explained with words, but it's still difficult to grasp. Now, the reason for that is, I don't know about you, but I've never met a human being that is also three distinct persons at the same time. I don't know if you've done, I'm not talking, I mean, I'm sure you've met some people with split personalities. <laughs> um, it's not quite the same thing we're going for there. Um, but we haven't really met any being that is also more than one person. That seems odd, unusual, so that's why it's confusing for us. It's kind of like we're in a 2D movie right now, and there's this 3D element that we're not comprehending because we've never lived in a 3D world, and that's kind of what we're looking at there. It kind of reminds me, though, of the verse, Romans 11.33, that says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The reality is there's a lot about God that we cannot fully comprehend. If we could fully comprehend God, then it's probably not God that you're thinking of. I once had a great friend who told me as he was searching for the truth and searching for, for, for who's the real God in all this and what's the, what's the real... And when he discovered the God of the Bible, he discovered a God that he could not fully explain and fully understand. And that's one of the first things that drew him to Christianity because all the other gods that were being described to him, he could figure out. He could understand. But the God of the Bible is so infinite and massive and complex, like, I can't even begin to explain this. And if God is to be God, he has to be somewhat out of our ability to fully grasp and understand. For starters, here we go. Let's define the Trinity. First, before I, I give a, what, what, one of Crosspoint's definitions, once again, pastor and apologist James White defined it in this simple way. He said, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a very nice, simple one, straight to the point. Um, one of my favorites, though, which is a little bit lengthy, is the definition of the Trinity within the Athanasian Creed, which dates back to the 4th century. This is a very early Christian document. 
Um, and we could just take the rest of the time and go over that. We're not going to do that. But I'm going to look at the Trinity section of the Athanasian Creed. And I love this so much because they don't want to leave any stone unturned. It's like, God is this, but not this. God is this, but he's not this. And as you'll see here in a moment, they wrote this. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal. The majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, such as the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Ghost almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. And as you notice in this, as they're defining him, they don't want to have a misconception of three gods. And so they constantly have to say what the Trinity is not. And once again, because we're explaining something that's kind of beyond our reach, beyond our grasp, it's easier to describe something in the negative than in the positive. Well, we know what it isn't. It's not this, it's not this, and it's not this. And you'll find that often in describing that. If you were to go to Crosspoint's website and look at our core beliefs and click on the God, uh, the God belief, this is what you would read. We believe that God created the space, time, energy, and material, which we now refer to as the universe. The universe is not some cosmic accident, it's a divine and intentional work of the creator. He is the one true, uncreated, unlimited, infinite, and almighty God, yet in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal and co-equal in unity, glory, and majesty. Now once again, as we progress through this, I'm hoping to bring some more clarity to the difference between the essence of God and the three persons of God. But first, we have to look at the most obvious thing that we saw in each of these definitions, and that's this, that there is one God. There is one God, not three gods. There is one eternal supreme being. This is referred to as monotheism. This is what scripture clearly teaches and what Jews and Christians have historically believed, that there is only one true God. This is a very very critical and important point. Let's look at some verses. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord our God is one Lord. Jesus quoted this in Mark 12.29 when he said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, Unto thee it was shown that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. 
Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God with me. Psalm 18, 31 says, For who is God save the Lord? Now this is a very important passage to remember. Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is none else, there is no God beside me. And another very important passage, Isaiah 44, 24, it says, Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, and spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. We can unmistakably see from these passages that the God of the universe, the God defined in the Bible, is one God. That there is none before him, there is none after, and there is no other creator, and there is no other savior. And with this in mind, we have to look at the three divine persons of the one Godhead. This was the easy part. <laughs> we worship one God, Yahweh, this morning. Um, when we start talking about the three persons of the one God, the one what, and the three who's, that's where it gets confusing. So there's a great YouTuber, his page is called Red Pen Logic. Uh, he's a great apologist, and I recommend him. Two weeks ago, um, uh, he responded to an atheist's meme trying to make fun of Jesus praying to himself, which Jesus doesn't pray to himself. Um, and so within that video, he explained what Christians believe about the Trinity, and I thought he did a great job of explaining it, and he's much more witty than I am, so enjoy that. Many who criticize Christianity think that the Trinity is weird. Well, it is. But that doesn't mean it's false. Lots of things that are real can be weird. I know because I look in the mirror. This is Red Pen Logic with Mr. B, where we help you assess bad thinking by using good thinking. Plus, we try to have some fun while we're doing it. In today's tweet, Counterapologist offers a meme meant to mock Christian theology. It's a picture of Jesus praying, and it simply says, Are you there, God? It's me, you. Get it? If Jesus is God and he's praying to God, then that means Jesus is praying to himself. Well, if that's what you think, you better stick around. This meme trades on an imprecise understanding of God. So let's carefully define some terms together. Once we do, you'll see that this meme <laughs> fails to be funny. Fail. There are two terms that we need to understand, Unitarianism and Trinitarianism. Unitarianism is the belief that God is one person. Just as you are one being who is one person, one consciousness, God on this view is one being who is one person, one consciousness. Orthodox Jews, Muslims, and Jehovah's Witnesses are all Unitarians. Trinitarianism, on the other hand, is the belief that God is one, 
But within God, so to speak, are three centers of consciousness, three completely distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those persons interact with each other in personal ways, like talking to each other. Now, this concept of God makes a very important distinction between being and person. Obviously, it would be a contradiction to say three beings are one being, or three persons are one person. So then, what's the difference between being and person. I'm glad you asked. Being has to do with what something is, its nature or its essence. For example, a tree has being, a rock has being, and my hamster has being. Hi, Teddy. Where are you going? So rocks and hamsters aren't persons. Sorry, Teddy. And you have being too. You're a human being. So far, so good. Now, some beings are also persons. Person has to do with who someone is. When it comes to human beings, we all recognize both the being and the person. That is, what you are is distinct from who you are. For instance, I'm a being, a human being to be exact, but I'm also a particular person. Hi, I'm Mr. B. Nice to meet you. Persons have unique personal qualities like will and emotions and mind. So rocks and hamsters aren't persons. Sorry, Teddy. But humans are. We're personal beings. So the difference between being and person is the difference between what and who. A rock is one what and no who. Mr. B is one what and one who. And God is one what and three who's. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now listen carefully because here's where some people get confused. Each person within God shares the same single nature, the what, but is a distinct person, the who. So for example, the father is God and the son is God, but the father is not the son because they're distinct persons. Now let's go back to the original challenge. Jesus prays, are you their God? It's me, you. Now you probably already see the problem. It fails to differentiate between the father who's being prayed to and the son who's the one praying. Jesus isn't praying to himself. He's praying to the father. We could easily restate this meme. Are you there father? It's me, your son. Why is this better? Why would Jesus who is God pray to the father? who is God, because no one prays to a nature, in this case, the divine nature of the Father and the Son. Instead, we pray to another person, like the Father, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So what have we learned? First, the meme relies on a misunderstanding to get a laugh, but Christian theology is Trinitarian theology. God is one eternal being, three eternal persons. Once you understand the important distinction between a being, a what, and a person, a who, you can easily spot where this meme goes wrong. Jesus wasn't praying to himself. He was praying to the Father. Second, the Trinity is not contradictory. Three persons in one God may be weird, but it's not a contradiction. Hello? Are you there, Dad? It's me, your son. Sorry, I gotta take this. Class dismissed.
And this was edited down a little bit. If you'd like to see his full clip, he also dives into the two natures when Jesus was incarnate of him being God and man at the same time, which is also very important. We don't have time to dive into that uh, today, but that is also uh, in his video. Uh, Red Pen Logic is the name of his, his YouTube video there. But this is important that you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They share that being, but there are different persons. And so with that understanding, let's look at God the Father and define the Father for a moment. The Father is faithful to his people and his promises. Before the foundation of the world, he chose to redeem those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He set redemption in motion and he sent Jesus and he draws people to Jesus. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, and then we'll look at a couple other verses at the bottom of the chapter. All that the Father giveth me, Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. Now, no one, as far as I know, who believes in God, the God of the Bible, would argue that the father is not God. It's excruciatingly clear. Um, he clearly is. But something that is important to each of these passages is that the father is distinctly a different person than the Son. The Father chose to redeem people through the Son. The Father gave us the Son. The Father draws people to the Son. So with this in mind, let's take a look at God the Son. God the Son, Jesus, also known as the Word of God, became a man without ceasing to be God. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a perfect, sinless life in order that he might reveal himself and redeem us. He accomplished redemption for those who believe through his death on the cross as a voluntary substitutionary sacrifice. He then defeated death, thus proving he was who he said by resurrecting from his grave on the third day from his burial. He then met with many people before ascending back into heaven, and he'll one day return. He now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on behalf of all believers. He draws people to himself. Then one of the most powerful passages in Scripture regarding the deity of Christ is John chapter 
one. And my understanding, uh, Greek gets me into trouble because I know enough Greek to really mess it up. And it's just all Greek to me at that point. But there's some amazing Greek scholars across the board that even, even, even skeptics who don't believe the Bible that understand Greek know that John is teaching that Jesus is God. The only people that try to say that John's saying something different than that are cults that make up their own Greek. <laughs> um, all right, so across the board, Greek scholars understand, uh, people that understand the book of John know that this is what it is teaching. And in John chapter 1, it says this, in the beginning was the word. And as we see later in this passage, the word is speaking of Jesus, the Logos, all right? The Son of God, Jesus, the word. And in the Greek, you could translate this, before creation, the word already existed. That's how strong this very first phrase is in this passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now this seems like a contradiction because in the Old Testament, God said there was no God with Him. But here it says the Word was with God, and that the Word was God. So once again, it's pointing to that plurality of the Godhead, and yet still singular. There is one being, one God, yet three persons. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. But the Bible says that God created everything by himself. He said, I did it by myself. And here it says that it wasn't made without the word. And it continues to say that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is very clearly deity claims of who Jesus is. Jesus is, Jesus is the creator as well. Jesus is with God and was God as well. And so you have this equality between the Father and the Son. We see the plurality of the Godhead, the distinctness of Jesus, yet the singularity of one God. In John chapter 8, verse 24, it says this, Jesus said, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, once again, my understanding, uh, uh, the phrase, I am he, he is normally added. It's usually italicized in your Bibles because that's the same phrase there, I am, I am. And then the Greek, that is ego, a me. These are called the I am claims of Jesus. And when he says, before Abraham was, I am, he's not just simply saying, before Abraham was born, I already existed. So yeah, there's an eternality claim there. But he's referencing the name of God. The great I am. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Because I keep referencing Abraham as if Abraham is greater than Jesus. He's like, no, before Abraham was, I am. And they understand the claim. If he had just said, I always existed, they'd probably go, this guy's a loony bin. 
But no, they pick up stones. They want to kill him because they know he's making a God claim here. Augustine thought that the same as he read this passage. When you can literally read the same passage and say, Before Abraham was, I am God. This is the powerful statement that he is making here. In John 13, 19, Jesus said, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Once again, that same phrase, ego eimi. And what's interesting is if you look at Isaiah 43, in verse, uh, verse 10 or 11, it says that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And if you take the Greek Septuagint, which is what Jesus would have been referencing, and stack that New Testament passage with that Old Testament passage, it's almost an exact match as if he's quoting Isaiah 43, which is a direct reference, once again, to Exodus of saying, I am, have sent you. And once again, I don't know the Greek. Don't ask me about that. Um, I can recommend a book called The Forgotten Trinity by James White. If you want to get into the Greek and all that, this goes deep with it. But I don't know what I'm talking about. He actually reads Greek and Hebrew. This guy like does his morning devotions with the Greek text. How does that make you feel? Uh, makes, makes me feel really ignorant. Um, maybe one day. Um, but that's my understanding of those passages. But one of my favorite I am passages, right? If that's not good enough for you, like that's just, oh, that's Greek and we're looking at this and like these I am claims, these ego me thing. When Jesus is in the garden and, and, and all these soldiers are there to arrest him, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth after Judas kisses him? And Jesus goes, ego me," And they all fall over to the ground just by saying his name. He's not just saying, yeah, that's me. No, he's saying, I am. And that power throws them to the ground. John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33 says, I and my father are one. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. The people knew exactly the context and the clarity of Jesus' claim to be God. And the apostles unapologetically taught this. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 8 and 9, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, it says this, Who, speaking of Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also had highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Once again, a, a very clear passage of Jesus being God for eternity past, who then at a later time 
took on human flesh. And yet, the Father being God, the Father, the Son being different, distinct persons. We also see them sharing glory. Jesus is glorified, and because Jesus is glorified, the Father is glorified. Now, briefly, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot I began to study more getting into this weekend on the Holy Spirit, which was really awesome, but we don't have time for it. And I didn't finish studying out all of the Holy Spirit. So we'll do this a little briefer than I wanted to do. But as I understand to them, there's a difference in regards to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has a different role within the Trinity. Well, obviously the Father is like, I am God. And then Jesus comes on and says, I am God. And then you have the Holy Spirit whose job is to point to the Son. That is his role. And James White wrote it like this, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit does not receive the same level and kind of attention that is focused upon the Father and the Son. It is not his purpose to attract the kind of attention to himself. Just as the Son voluntarily chose to take the role of suffering servant so as to redeem God's people, so too the Spirit has chosen to take the role as sanctifier and advocate of the people of God. But since it is the Spirit's role to direct the hearts of men in Christ and to conform them to his image, he does not seek to push himself into the forefront and gain attention for himself. And so the Holy Spirit has this very distinct role, just as the Father is not the one who died on the cross, Jesus is the one who died on the cross. And the Holy Spirit is the gift that's been given to us, and he is the one who draws us to Jesus. But let's go ahead and define the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws people to Christ, enables them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He supernaturally baptizes all believers into the body of Christ, indwelling and sealing them unto the day of redemption. He empowers believers to live the Christian life. He comforts believers and, prays and helps them pray. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write God's inspired word, the Bible. Pastor Joel preached on that last week. He helps believers to understand and apply the scriptures. First off, let's look, let's look at John 14, verses 16 through 18. It says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. You see, we see this passage clearly teaching that the Holy Spirit is a different, distinct person. The Holy Spirit's not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. Jesus is asking the Father to send forth the Spirit from the Father and from the Son. First uh, John chapter 4, verses 12 through 15 says this, If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. It says, we know... We love one another and we know that God dwells in us because his spirit dwells in us. And it goes on to say that God dwells in us. And so it equates the spirit of God dwelling in us to God dwelling in us because we have his spirit. One of the most clear passages on this teaching from the apostles is in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit 
And Peter says, Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And he equates lying to the Holy Spirit as being the same as lying to God. And one last passage we'll look at with the Holy Spirit. There's the, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. And there's many passages like this, once again, for sake of time, that talk about how the Holy Spirit shares the same attributes as the what? As God. And the only way for that to be possible is for him to be God. And this is one of those cases. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13. God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, he the deep things of God. You catch that? The Spirit of God searches all of the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now we know, as humans, right, we're human beings, we, talked, we saw that in the video, we're human beings, we're also a person because we have a soul, we have a spirit. And as humans, we know, the thi we know things because of that. Likewise, we know the things of God because we have the Holy Spirit of God. And, and the only way the Spirit of God can know the infinite things of God is if he is also infinite. Therefore, he is also omniscient. He must be deity. And this happens time and time and time again of the Holy Spirit sharing the attributes of God himself because he is God. And so you have all three persons, all defined. They have these unique roles within Trinity, but they are all God in unison together. And so to wrap this up, we're going to look at the unity of the three persons of our one God. And honestly, this is my favorite part. We're heading, I promise, we're heading in for a landing right here. If I'm boring anyone half to death here. So we're going to go on for a landing here. Um, the late R.C. Sproul once said, the whole of creation is a Trinitarian work and the whole of redemption is a Trinitarian work. You see, the Bible clearly teaches, as we've already read, that God created the universe and all living things by himself. Yet we see the Spirit of God and the Son of God both participating in the creation of the universe. This not only points to their deity, but to the oneness and unity of God, unified in creation. That's why in Genesis 1-2 we see the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And in Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 7 it says, By him, speaking of Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things consist. And that's why it makes so much more sense when you're reading Genesis chapter 1 and you see things like this in, chapter, in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And I think it's like the very next verse, it says, and he created them in his image. And in 
his likeness. And so you have this fellowship within the Trinity. They'll say, hey, let's make him after us. And then he singularly, as God, does that. But not only that, we see the three distinct persons of the Godhead working in complete unity for our redemption. He's unified in our redemption. The Bible teaches us that God is drawing us, which means he's leading us, driving us, prodding us, urging us to Christ. And, and the Bible teaches that the Father is drawing us in John 6, 44, that the Son is drawing us in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, that the Holy Spirit is drawing us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3 and Acts 7, 51. But not only that, it's God who saves us. And if you, please take the time to read all of Ephesians chapter 1. Powerful, powerful. We read a little excerpt of it earlier, I believe. But Ephesians chapter 1 teaches us that the Father chose to save us. That the Son does redemptive work for us and the Holy Spirit seals us. And even though the Holy Spirit has the unique role of sealing us, all three persons of the Godhead are responsible for keeping us saved. The Bible teaches us that we're kept by the Father in John 10, 30. That we're kept by the Son in Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. And of course, as we just saw in Ephesians 1, 13, that we're kept by the Holy Spirit. But my favorite part, my favorite part in the Trinity is that we see that they share the glory of God within the Trinity. They're unified for God's glory. We see this in John 17, John 16. The Father glorifies the Son. The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. Then the Son glorifies the Father. I love this because basically the, the Father sends the Son, and the Son petitions the Father to send the Spirit, and the Spirit points to the Son, and the Son points to the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. The Son gives the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Jesus points to the Father. And you have this perfect unity of glory that has existed eternally. That glory, that fellowship of the Godhead. You see, God doesn't need us for fellowship. He had perfect fellowship within himself for all eternity. And when you know that, understand he didn't have to create you for fellowship. He already had it. He created you because he chose to. And he chooses to love us. And he chooses to have the son come die for us. This perfect unity of glory. I love in Matthew 28, after they worship Jesus, and some doubted, but you have these people worshiping Jesus. By the way, there's only one person, there's only one being that is allowed to be worshiped in the Bible, and that's God. But he accepts their worship multiple times. After they worship him, he's, he doesn't say, not, no, go baptize in my Father's name. He doesn't say, no, go baptize in my name. He actually says this, go therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, including all three persons of the Trinity, sharing the glory in perfect unity. So I know that was a lot. Just dumped all that on you guys really quick. Um, but here's what we just learned, not to confuse the matter. Our one God, or sorry, our God is one God. Our one God is triune. The Trinity is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. 
The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one God. Thus, all that to say in simple terms, in our core beliefs, we say he is the one true, uncreated, unlimited, infinite, and almighty God, yet in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal and co-equal in unity, glory, and majesty.